I went to college in the middle of cornfields and soybean fields in south-central Ohio. And during my freshman year, one weekend, my roommate named Dan and I, um, we were best friends from high school and chose to room together, which actually was a mistake, but um, we, we chose, and this was a mistake too, we chose to go to the Greene County Fair in, out, just outside of Xenia, Ohio. And, and the fair was typical of what you would expect from a rural fair in South Central Ohio. You, you had a lot of livestock judging, 4-H contests, carnival rides, um, booths selling um, artery-clogging food, like fried Oreos. I mean, who needs to fry an Oreo? Um, elephant ears, corn dogs, all manner of, of, of junk food. But in between the, the carnival rides and the food vendors was, was this rather mysterious-looking booth with a black curtain covering the entrance and, and a simple sign on top that, that just said, fortune-telling, fortune-telling. Curiosity got the best of my roommate. He said, hey, Mark, let's go check that out. And me, being the good Baptist boy that I was, um, said, uh, I don't think that's a good idea, Dan. Um, I was hesitant. You know, it's probably just a waste of money. And... and you know, I really don't want to mess with that stuff. It's just kind of spooky, Dan. But he persisted and, and egged me on, begged me to go along with him. And so for moral support, against my better judgment, I went along with him. And we pushed our way through the black curtain and saw what you might expect to see in a fortune-telling booth at a county fair in rural, rural Ohio. There in that dimly lit booth uh, with incense burning over in the corner was this... Um, woman sitting there um, dressed like a gypsy, uh, wearing way too much eye makeup, and uh, with a very serious and mysterious look, look on her face. She had a crystal ball on one side and a stack of cards. I guess they were tarot cards. I don't know what tarot cards look like, but those are, those are probably them on one side. And then, then a price list for her services. And Dan, being a semi-broke um, college student, decided to go for the cheapest option, which was a simple palm reading. Um, she then looked at me um, and, and asked me what service I would like to buy, and, and I declined, and she just stared at me. You know, there was like a serious stare and disapproving look on her face, and I felt uncomfortable, but I should have left then. I really should have left then. Um, but I had promised my, my roommate, Dan, that I would be there for him, and so I took a seat in the corner. I didn't want to abandon him. And the fortune teller then took Dan's hand and began to read his palm. And after a minute or so of her running her fingers along the lines of his palm and nodding her head as if she was discovering um, something very deep and meaningful, um, the strangest thing happened. She began to chuckle. And the chuckle then turned into an all-out laugh. And then the all-out laugh began to turn into hysterical laughter. And... Dan kind of looked over at me, and I looked at him, and we were like, what do we do here? And, and we thought she would stop, but she didn't stop. She just kept laughing and laughing and laughing. And so I, Dan wasn't doing anything. He was just kind of sitting there. So I thought, I need to take charge of this situation. So I stood up and said, ma'am, ma'am, no effect. She just kept on laughing. So I, I got closer, and I put my hand on her shoulder and said, ma'am, ma'am, nothing. Just kept hysterically laughing. So I, I just kind of went like this and slapped her cheek a little bit. And... and she stopped like that, got a serious look on her face, stood up, ran to the door, blocked it, and started yelling for security. I was like, oh, no. 
And, and what happened next is really kind of a blur in my mind. It really is. Um, we, we didn't know what to do, but security came. Then, then cops were called. They interviewed her. They took us to the side, interviewed us. And for the first time and only time in my life, I was arrested. <laughs> you know what the charge was? Striking a happy medium. Sorry. Very little of what I just told you was true. It was just a made-up story to capture your attention and to draw you in so that I could, one, set you up for the punchline of a corny dad joke, but two, to illustrate for you the power of a story. You know, there wasn't one of you that was looking at your phone. You all were here. You had your eyes trained on me. Stories are powerful things. They're a great tool of communication. There's something about a story that captures our attention as humans like nothing else. And I see this all the time as a pastor. You know, when I'm preaching, I'm looking at you. I don't know if you knew that. But I'll look around, and every once in a while, I'll notice this. Or this. I won't name any names, um, But as soon as I start telling a story or giving an illustration, you know what happens? You look back up. Everybody's eyes are back on me. Stories are powerful things. Perhaps that's why God has chosen to reveal himself primarily through what? Story. And in the Bible, most of it is narrative. And as a congregation, we've just experienced the power of story over the past month and a half as we studied the narrative, the Old Testament short story of Ruth and drawn many important biblical truths from that story. Now, if you flip to the New Testament of the Bible, you begin and begin reading the three first books there, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you'll notice something. You'll notice, okay, these are narratives, stories of the words and the works of Jesus. But inside the narratives, if you look even closer, you'll notice that there's narratives within the narratives. There's stories in the stories. And those stories are stories that Jesus told. 35% of the recorded words that we have of Jesus in our Bible are stories that we call parables. 35%. In Mark 4, we read this. With many similar parables, Jesus spoke the word to them as much as they could understand. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. So Jesus, being a master teacher, knew the power of a well-told and well-timed story. Now, I told you a fiction story as we began um, about a fortune teller, merely to draw you in as listeners and lower your defenses so I could hit you up the side of the head with a corny dad joke. But Jesus' purposes for telling parables were much uh, more significant than that. The stories Jesus told, they also drew people in and lowered their defenses, but he told them to set people up, to hit them up the side of the head with eternal life-changing truth. And over the next couple months, we're going to take time together as a congregation to study many of the parables of Jesus in a sermon series that we've aptly entitled, the parables of Jesus, Um, earthly stories, eternal truths. We won't be looking at every parable that Jesus told. Depending on how you count them, there's over 40 of them. 
But we will uh, select and make a curated list that we'll go through together as a congregation with the goal of looking at them in their context, their original context, and applying the eternally significant truths that they contain to our everyday lives here in the 21st century. But I'll warn you right here from the beginning as we dive into this sermon series, the parables of Jesus are not like bedtime stories that put us to sleep. They're more like bugle calls to wake us up. They're not meant to be entertaining. They're meant to be convicting. We won't be looking at any particular parable of Jesus this morning. We'll allude to some. Um, Instead, I'm going to give you an introduction to the parables of Jesus. So think of this morning's time less like a sermon, more like a seminary class. This is going to be a bad sermon, but a really good theological training class, okay? All right, well, let's dive in. If you're taking notes, we're going to ask and answer four questions in our time together. One, what is a parable? Two, what are the different types of parables that we find in the Gospels? Three, why did Jesus use parables? And four, how should we study parables? Say those questions out loud with me so you can track along. One, two, three, and four. All right, first, what's a parable? You may have heard the familiar definition of a parable as this. An earthly story with a heavenly meaning. An earthly story with a heavenly meaning. And while this definition doesn't fully capture everything, it's a pretty good summary because parables often connect the visible world of nature with the invisible world of the spiritual. For instance, Jesus used a seed to illustrate the word of God. He used a feast to, to explain salvation. He used a lost coin to communicate the value Of a human soul. Our English word parable is very similar to the Greek word parable. It's basically a transliteration of the Greek word parabole. Say that out loud with me. Parabole. Okay, that, that Greek word means this to place beside or to cast alongside. So for you math majors out there, it's where we also get our English word parabola. Does anybody know what a parabola is? It it's a describes a curve where one side perfectly mirrors the other side, okay? And a parable, then, is a story that places one thing beside another for the purpose of teaching. It it puts the known next to the unknown, or the unknown next to the known, mirroring each other so that we may learn. It refers to the analogy that's being drawn between something commonplace and a deep spiritual truth specifically for the purpose of teaching a spiritual lesson. So if you're taking notes this morning, here is going to be our working definition of a parable as we go through this sermon series. Say this out loud with me. A simple word picture or story composed to illustrate a profound truth. Only about 30% of you said that out loud. Let's try this again. A simple word picture or story composed to illustrate a profound spiritual truth. So that answers our first question. Let's move on to our second question. What are the different types of parables that we find in the Gospels? There's three types. There's full full stories, similitudes, and parabolic sayings. The form that you're probably most familiar with is the first, full stories. Stories like the parable of the Good Samaritan, the parable of the prodigal son, the parable of the lost sheep, 
But there's two other literary forms that we find in the Gospels that are also called parables, similitudes and parabolic sayings. Similitudes are basically extended similes that usually begin with the phrase, the kingdom of heaven is like, and then it goes on to to make a comparison. You'll find most of these in Matthew chapter 13, one right after the other as Jesus tells them. The kingdom of heaven is like this. The kingdom of heaven is like that. The kingdom of heaven is like a a man searching for pearls. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. Those are similitudes, okay? Then there's parabolic sayings. And these are short, pithy, basically one-liners from Jesus. One-liner word pictures. And there's a lot of these in Luke's gospel, mainly contained in chapters 4 through 7 of Luke. For instance, there's one in, this one in Luke chapter 6, 39. You'll probably, probably recognize it. Uh, it's where we get our English phrase, blind leading the blind. Okay? He, he also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? So two phrases, but it's called a parable. Other examples of parabolic sayings of Jesus are phrases like, Physician, heal thyself. No one sews a new patch on an old garment. No one puts new wine in an old wineskin. These parabolic sayings are, 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 they sound somewhat like proverbs, but they're still called parables in the pages of the gospel. During our time together in our parables sermon series, we we won't be looking at very many um, of the parabolic sayings, we're mostly going to focus on the full stories and the um, similitudes. But I wanted you to at least be aware of all three literary types in the Gospels that are, that are called parables. Well, that brings us to our third question. Why did Jesus tell parables? Why did Jesus teach in parables? This is where we'll spend most of our time together because it's important. I've already alluded to this earlier, but one reason that Jesus told parables was to draw his listeners in and lower their defenses. To draw people in, lower their defenses. Why was he wanting to lower their defenses? So that he could hit them upside the head with profound, life-changing, eternally significant truth. I had a seminary professor that that once taught um, us in class that you need to use humor strategically. And as as your congregation's mouths are open laughing, then you can cram the truth down their throat, you know? So, um, but that's kind of how Jesus used parables. He he drew people in with them, lowered their defenses, and then was able to to hit them, blindside them, basically, with, with profound truth. Oftentimes, hard truth that they really didn't want to hear. For instance, in Luke 15... Um, we find three back-to-back parables that Jesus told that all relate to each other. The lost sheep, the lost coin, the prodigal son. We'll actually look at those parables together in our series. Um, They come one right after the other, but do do you know why Jesus told those parables? Anybody know why? Gabe's shaking his head. No, you're with me. Good. Okay. Well, let's read why. Because right at the beginning of Luke chapter 15, we read this. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. That sets up the why behind the three parables. Instead of rebuking the Pharisees and the scribes to their face for their judgmental and condescending attitudes, Jesus told them three back-to-back parables that revealed the loving heart of God towards sinners and 
simultaneously served as a backhanded rebuke for these self-righteous leaders. I love how Jesus did this. If Jesus had taken the direct approach of rebuking them for their pride and self-righteousness, you know, they probably would have dragged him out of the house and stoned him in the street right then and there. But Jesus didn't do that. He took an indirect approach of storytelling to draw them in, lower their defenses, and then hit them up the side of the head with truth in a surprising way that they probably really didn't totally comprehend until later, if at all. And Jesus wasn't the first to use parables like this. In the Old Testament, we, we have an example of it in the book of 2 Samuel. We find there the story of a, a prophet named Nathan who was tasked with confronting King David about his sin of adultery with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband, um, discreet murder of her husband, when he tried to cover it up. Uh, basically, if you don't know that story, King David um, stole another man's wife. The guy's name was Uriah, and then he gave Uriah was in the army, and he gave Uriah's captain orders to like charge charge forward and then drop back, but don't tell Uriah, and he got killed. And so, basically, David had him murdered. How would you like the job of confronting King David? I don't know how this went down, but okay, we need somebody to go and uh, tell the king that he's a dirty, filthy, rotten sinner. Volunteers? Anyone? Anyone? Yeah, he has the power to cut off your head, but hey, we need somebody. I mean, that, that's an awful job. I wouldn't want to take it, but uh, Nathan was a prophet. That was his job. He was tasked to do it. And so knowing that David had grown up as a shepherd and, and likely that this king, this powerful king, had a soft spot for sheep, here's what Nathan did. He told David a parable. 2 Samuel 12, 1 through 7. Let's read it together. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. And he came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb which he had bought. And he brought it up, and he grew up with him and with his children. He used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, which is a little weird, but hey. And it was like a daughter to him. Verse 4, now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, as, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, you are the man. Boom, mic drop. Nathan's parable drew David in. It lowered his defenses and enabled Nathan to smack David right up the side of the head with the truth, a convicting truth. You are the man. You're the rich man who took the other guy's lamb and sacrificed it. David, you're the guilty party here. And it worked. David repented. You know, a few years back, I was sleeping quite soundly and having a very detailed dream about watering plants. 
Um, all of our houseplants were, were withered and, and collapsed. And in my dream, I was running back and forth from the kitchen sink to where our plants are and, and trying to save their poor wilted lives, you know. And mid-dream, I wake up and realize I am really, really thirsty. I, my, my subconscious was telling me a parable. Mark, you are the plant. Um, that doesn't really relate to this message, but I just want to tell you a story to get your eyes back up here. Okay, so Jesus used parables to draw his listeners in, lower their defenses, but there are two other reasons, other reasons why Jesus told parables. And he, expl- he explicitly states these reasons to his disciples in Matthew chapter 13. Let's look at verse, chap- verse 10 of Matthew chapter 13 together. Here it is. The disciples came to him, came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. And then a few verses later, we read in verse 16 and 17, but blessed are your eyes for they see and your ears for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it and hear what you hear and did not hear it. So another reason that Jesus spoke in parables is this, to graciously reveal truth to those given ears to hear. Say that out loud with me. To graciously reveal truth to those given ears to hear. So Jesus told his disciples that through the parables, he was giving them and revealing to them the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. Well, what are these mysteries? Are they like unsolved cases? No, not really. Um, The mysteries of the kingdom of heaven are, basically Jesus is referring to truths that are, are sort of hidden and mysterious in the Old Testament underneath the Old Covenant that are now being revealed more fully in Christ and the New Covenant and the kingdom that Jesus is inaugurating. For instance, it was not a mystery in the Old Testament that God was going to send a Messiah in the line of David. But it was a mystery about what kind of Messiah God was going to send. And that's the kind of truth that Jesus was revealing through his parables to those who had been graciously given ears to hear what he was telling them. And the only reason that the disciples could understand and comprehend what Jesus was communicating through these parables was because God was graciously giving them ears to hear, eyes to see the truth, mercifully opening their hearts and their minds, removing the blinders, spiritual blinders from their their eyes. And this is the same with us today when it comes to spiritual truth. Why do you look at the cross and see forgiveness while others look at the cross and see foolishness? Is it because you're smarter or, or somehow superior? No, no. In spite of ourselves, we've been graciously given Eyes to see and ears to hear the mysteries of the kingdom of God. It's the mercy of God being displayed in our lives. Spiritual knowledge. If you look at the cross and see forgiveness, spiritual knowledge has been given to you as a gracious gift from God. So Jesus told parables to graciously reveal truth to those who had been given ears to hear. But, but there's another really opposite reason stated in Matthew chapter 13. Let's read for, on from verse 11. To you, the disciples, it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them 
It has not been given. So, so basically, there's two different audiences for the parables and two different purposes based on the audiences. Verse, 13, verse 12. For to, one, for to the one who has, the disciples, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. That, this is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. So another main purpose that Jesus told parables is this, to conceal truth from those with hard hearts. Say that out loud with me. To conceal truth from those with hard hearts. So on one hand, Jesus told the parables to reveal truth to those who were believing the mysterious, but on the other hand, he told the very same parables to conceal the very same truth from those who were denying the obvious, the religious leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, the ones who were already convinced in their hearts and their minds that Jesus was a false teacher in spite of all the signs and miracles he had given to them and done in front of them, performed before their very eyes, the lame walking, the blind seeing, the deaf hearing, the multitude's being fed, and yet they persisted in their stubborn unbelief. They had eyes, but failed to see, and ears, but failed to hear. And and really, this is evidence of God's judgment against them for their unbelief. The same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay. Instead of attributing these miracles to God in their blindness and hard-heartedness, who did they attribute the, the, the miracles to? Where did they say the power was coming from? Anybody know? They said this is coming from Beelzebub, the, the prince of demons. The power that Jesus has to cast out demons is coming from Satan himself, which doesn't make too much logical sense, and that's why Jesus then told a parable, ironically, of binding a strong man and a house divided against itself cannot stand to confront their faulty logic. The parables of Jesus are the revealing words of a master teacher, but they're also the concealing sentences of a holy judge. They're the revealing words of a master teacher, but they're also the concealing sentences of a holy judge. And this brings us to our final and most practical question. How should we study the parables? How should we study the parables? First off, we must always listen from the original hearer's perspective. You know, if you are looking for real estate and you hire a realtor, what are they going to tell you are the most important factors in determining the value of real estate? They'll give you three Factors, what are they? Yeah, you've been trained well. Location, location, location. Are you guys looking for a house? Okay, all right. Um, (laughs) Now, what's the most important factor in determining the meaning of a parable? Any Bible teacher worth their salt, any theologian will tell you three things. You know what it is or what they are? It's one thing. Context. Context, which is kind of like location. You both are right. You don't get in a marital spat. Context, context, context. By ripping parables out of their original context in the gospel narratives, people have taken parables and twisted them to say all kinds of things they were never meant to teach, never intended to say. 
So as we go through this series, we're always going to look at the why behind, behind. We're always going to look at the surrounding context. What's leading up to Jesus telling this story? What's motivating him to frame it in this way? That's so, so important to understanding what Jesus is going to teach through the story. For instance, um, well, let me back up just a little bit. Lost my place in my notes. <laughs> so as we go through, we're going to look at the why. Um, but we're, we're also going to look at um, the, the details of the parable and, and make sure that we're not uh, going too far with them. Um, for instance, to, to even begin to understand the parable of the Good Samaritan, you've got to be able to step into the shoes of a first century Jew and feel the emotion that's incited. As, as you even hear the word Samaritan. So listen from the original hearer's perspective. And secondly, which I just alluded to, look for the main point and don't over-allegorize. Look for the main point and don't over-allegorize. We've got to put ourselves in the original audience, uh, the sandals of the original audience, but we also have to listen for the main point. And don't over-allegorize. Usually each parable of Jesus simply has one main truth that it's revealing to those with ears to hear. This doesn't mean that there's not some allegory in a few parables of Jesus, or not more than a couple sub-points, but Jesus usually, if it's allegorical, Jesus usually explains the details of the allegory. For instance, the parable of the sower, um, or soils, is, is rather allegorical. All the soils, different types of soils in that parable represent different kinds of hearts. And, and Levi, in a couple weeks, is going to be leading us through that parable. But Jesus gave a detailed explanation of the intricate details of that allegory when he was alone with his disciples. But there's been a long history of over-allegorizing the parables. For example, people have taken a par the parable of the Good Samaritan that I just mentioned and said that the man that was beaten represents sinners. The priest stands for the law. The Levite represents the sacrifices. Jesus is the Samaritan who pays the bill. The inn is the church where believers are cared for. The two silver coins are, are, that are paid are baptism and the Lord's Supper. The innkeeper is the Apostle Paul. Okay, well, that's creative, but it totally misses the point of the parable. It's an example of over-allegorizing. But that's what, sometimes what early church fathers would do with, with parables like the Good Samaritan. They would over-allegorize. They would, um, as one of my professors liked to say, try to make the parable walk on all fours um, and do, do more than it was meant to do. All righty. Um, again, lost my plates, place in my notes. Where's page 11? It's missing. Okay, well, that's okay. I think I know where I'm going. There it is. Okay. Um, so how should we say the parables? Listen from the... Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Listen from the original hearer's perspective. Look for the main point and don't over-allegorize. And thirdly, let the main point change our perception. Let the main point change our perception. The, the whole purpose of a parable is to challenge our perception. 
what a parable does is it, it uses a back door. It uses a story to, to gain access, to, to engage our emotions. And with the goal of challenging a notion or a firmly held belief that perhaps is misguided or perhaps we've held on to for far too long and that we totally need to rethink. Jesus was a master of challenging mistaken perceptions with his parables. And many of these perceptions that his original audience held, we hold to. And as we step into this study of the parables together as a congregation, my prayer and my expectation is that the timeless words of Jesus are going to challenge us and encourage us and change our perceptions and actions to more fully align with God's perspectives and God's purposes for our lives. So that's our introduction to the parables. As the band comes back up, I hope that this introduction has served to whet your appetite for what's coming as we go through the parables of Jesus, earthly stories, eternal truths. Next week, we're going to be studying the parable of the rich fool, um, which will no doubt challenge our perceptions as fairly wealthy Americans. Um, If you don't want to be convicted, skip next week. But um, (laughs) this parable will no doubt challenge our perceptions, our, our, our previously held conceptions about how life ought to work. And I hope you'll join us for the journey. It's, in my perspective, going to be life changing. I look forward to seeing what God is going to do in us, among us, through us, as we jump in to the teachings of Jesus, to the stories that he told. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for preserving the words of Jesus for us so we can learn from them, so they can draw us in and even hit us up the side of the head like they did their original audience. And Lord, we ask that as we step into this series, that we would be teachable, that we'd be humble, that that we wouldn't assume that we have it all figured out, even with with stories that we've heard over and over and over again if we've grown up in a church. Father, I pray that you would help us to read them and hear them with, with fresh eyes and ears and give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear. For we are spiritually blind and spiritually deaf apart from the quickening of your Holy Spirit within us. We need you. And we lift this series up to you asking that you would open our eyes, open our ears to hear what Jesus wants to tell us. We love you, Lord.